Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God, as we find it written in the second epistle of Peter, reading there in the first chapter, beginning at the third verse. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, but if these do these things ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, Christian friends in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is a beautiful winter morning, isn't it, with the sun shining and I do hope that all of us are glad that we are here in God's house to worship our Savior and our Lord. As you know, today is the second Sunday in Advent. That means that it's the second of four Sundays that precede Christmas. The word Advent means the coming, and as you also know, it refers to Christ as the coming one. And in the church here, the idea of the Advent season is this, that we are to use it to prepare ourselves for Christmas to get ourselves ready to celebrate the birthday of the manger child of Bethlehem. And the way we are doing it each Sunday is this. We are looking at the child of Bethlehem in the manger, and we are asking ourselves the question, what child is this? Who is this child whose birthday we are about to celebrate? We are turning to the Word of God, and we are getting our answers from various individuals there who have written by inspiration. Last Sunday, you recall, we turned to the book of Hebrews, and we had the author of the book of Hebrews, the one who wrote to the Jewish Christians, to tell us what child is this. And his answer, you recall, was this, that this child is no less than the high priest over the house of God. He is no less than your high priest in heaven, worthy of your faith and of your loyalty. And today on the second Sunday in Advent, we turn now to Simon Peter, the rock, the head of the twelve. We ask him, Simon Peter... What child is this? And Simon Peter, in his second letter that we have in the New Testament, he says to you and me, don't you know who this child is or what child this is? And his answer is this this morning. This child is no less than the king of an everlasting kingdom. He is no less than the Lord, the ruler of a kingdom that is eternal, that will never have an end. And Peter again would say to you and me, he's worthy of your fidelity, he's worthy of your allegiance, he's worthy of your loyalty, he is worthy of your commitment. 
And on this second Sunday, as we look at this child and we say, well, just because this child is the king of an everlasting kingdom, does that mean that he is so wonderful that you and I should therefore, in all respects to him, surrender ourselves to him, that we should give him our loyalty and our allegiance? We may say, what, after all, has this child as the king of an eternal kingdom? What has he done for you and what has he done for me? What's so wonderful about this child being the king of a never-ending kingdom? What does that mean in your life and mine for our good, for our welfare? And Simon Peter of the Rock would remind you and me that because this child is no less than the king of an eternal kingdom, that he is worthy of our loyalty and of our allegiance, because as the king of this unending kingdom, Peter would remind us that he has gone all out for you and me. He has done everything. He has thought of everything for us. He has forgotten nothing as regards our welfare. And we may say those are big words. You mean to say that as the king of an eternal kingdom, that he has thought of everything for us, that there is nothing more than as the king of this kingdom that he could do for us than what he has done or than what he is doing even now? That's what Simon Peter the Rock would remind you and me of this morning, that he has gone all out every inch of the way as the king of an eternal kingdom, and therefore worthy of our love and loyalty because in the first place Simon Peter the Rock would remind us that this child is no less than the king of an eternal kingdom, the king who came into this world to establish a kingdom more blessed than any kingdom that this world has ever seen. Oh, we sometimes get confused about this kingdom, do we not? We look at this child and we say, a king? Could this child be a king? And as this child grew up, uh, there was nothing kingly about him. Even the disciples, you know, were very much disturbed about the fact that Jesus spoke about being a king, that he had come to establish a kingdom. Their idea of a kingdom was like the kingdom under which they were subjects, and that was the kingdom of Rome. You see, at the time Jesus came, the Caesars had conquered the world, and therefore Palestine was under the legionnaires of Caesar, and the Jews were subject to the Romans. And therefore to them, what they were looking for was a Messiah. They were looking for a king who would overthrow the legionaries of Caesar of uh, Caesar and would again proclaim himself the victor. They wanted an army. They wanted a king who would have an army to fight. They started as politicians, you know, and they ended up as missionaries, as ministers. They didn't understand the kingdom. And when Jesus, you recall, stood before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and Pilate said, Are you a king? Because his people had accused him of making himself a king, and this was treason against Caesar. You recall that Jesus said, I am what you say I am. I am a king. But he said, My kingdom is not of this world, else would my servants fight. I wonder if we realize that this child is no less than the king of an everlasting kingdom who established a kingdom like unto which the world had never seen more blessed indeed than any kingdom that this earth has ever had. He came to establish a kingdom that was to be a kingdom that was to bring the forgiveness of sins to all men. That God in this kingdom would bring the eradication of all guilt, that God would remember the guilt of men no longer who were in this kingdom. He came to establish a kingdom on this earth that would deliver a man, body and soul from eternal death and hell, the punishment of his sins. He came to establish a kingdom that would give a man eternal life and everlasting salvation in heaven. 
It must be a wonderful kingdom because he came as our king, as God the king, to die to establish that kingdom. And I'm sure that if we stop and say in the light of the fact that God died, his son died on the cross in order to establish this kingdom, then whether you and I may appreciate it at times or not, we must say to ourselves it was a tremendous kingdom. There is nothing like it on the face of the earth. His kingdom is here, a kingdom of life and salvation. And therefore, he is worthy of your surrender and mine, of our commitment, because he's gone all out. He is the one who therefore, by his resurrection from the dead, has given you and me this absolute assurance that there is life beyond the grave and that life beyond the grave can be beautiful. It's because of his coming into the world as the king of an everlasting kingdom that I am absolutely certain that there is life beyond the grave. Without his coming, there would not be that certainty. You and I would not know. You and I would say, is there or is there not? But because he came and established a kingdom by his death, and because he as our king arose from the death, you and I can stake our life on this, that there is life beyond the grave, that the grave doesn't end human existence, and that this life can be beautiful when we put our faith and trust in him. This is the child whose birthday we are getting ready to celebrate, the king of an everlasting kingdom. When in your life and mind you and I can believe that, that he is no less than the king of an unending kingdom, that he is worthy of our loyalty. If we believe that, then we ought to be determined this morning to say, well, then I am going to surrender to him. And that means repentance. I wonder sometimes whether repentance gets rather cheap in our life, that it only means a tear here and there, that it only means a little sorrow to go on, continuing to do things that we know are wrong. I wonder if it's cheap repentance. I wonder if we really stand before him when we say, here is the king of an everlasting kingdom and I must repent to get into it, that we lay at his feet everything that you and I know is wrong, that we're doing it and say, I'm sorry enough that I'm going to stop. It stops here because it's wrong. And when in your experience and mind you and I have that kind of repentance, which isn't cheap repentance, and then when we put our faith and trust in him, that he who died gives us the righteousness that brings us into that kingdom, then we are ready for Christmas because then we begin to appreciate what his coming has meant. Oh, let's not hesitate to repent of our sins because of the nature of our sins. It is Simon Peter who was called the rock, Cephas, who again reminds you and me just who this child was. And that you recall Simon Peter before he was that rock that Jesus said he would be when he stood in the courtyard of Caiaphas, when he was warming his hands that night of the betrayal, when he was asked by a maid whether he knew Jesus, you recall it was this Simon, the rock, who said, I never saw him before in my life. I don't know him. It was he who denied him when he had been with him for three years. And sometimes in your life and mine there comes this experience we say, my sin seems so great that I cannot repent. Simon Peter the rock would say, no greater than my sins. I denied him with an oath and I cursed and I blasphemed and I said I didn't know him. And when in your life and mine we say it's not going to be cheap repentance, it's going to be a sorrow for sin that I am laying at his feet. And I am stopping these things that I know are wrong. And I'm asking for forgiveness. And then Christmas will begin to mean something amidst all the hubbub of the day. Because we will say, this is no less 
than the king of an eternal kingdom. I have forgiveness of sins. I have the deliverance from hell. I have eternal life in him. I have this assurance that the grave doesn't end life, uh, that beyond the grave, life will be worthwhile. It will be beautiful with him. We say to ourselves on this second Sunday in Advent, what child is this? Who is he? What's he doing for me now? Even though he is the king of an eternal, unending kingdom, uh, what does that mean to me? Has he gone all out? Uh, what is he doing today for my welfare? And Simon Peter the Rock would remind you and me in the second place uh, that he is no less than the king of an everlasting kingdom who went back to heaven and who rules with absolute power over all the kingdoms of this earth, lest his kingdom should be destroyed. You may say, do you mean to say that he is ruling over the kingdoms of this earth? You may say, listen, preacher, isn't that just wishful thinking? You know, David, back in the Old Testament, a thousand years before Jesus came, he said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In simple English, that means this. Uh, that this king who has returned to heaven is seated at the right hand of power, exercising omnipotence with his feet on the necks of his enemies of all the kingdoms of the earth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he as the king now is running the show? Or have you and I gotten this place where we are saying to ourselves uh, that it seems like the show is being run by those, again, who are opposed to God, that the show is being run here on earth. But Jesus Christ says he is at the right hand of God and he is running the show. When he was here on earth about his kingdom, you know, he was up in Caesarea Philippi with the twelve one day. Remember that incident when he had them alone? He said to them, who are men uh, saying that I am? Uh, what do I mean to some? And they gave him several answers. And he said, you twelve, who do you say that I am? Remember, it was Simon Peter who said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, thou art Peter, thou art the rock. And upon uh, this rock, which is his confession that he just made, he said, I shall build my church. That's his kingdom. And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Up in Caesarea Philippi one day, he said, my kingdom is going to be an indestructible one, the gates of hell. Satan and hell shall never destroy my kingdom. You and I look at that kingdom today and we say, here it is, the 20th century, and it's still here. And it's still here and it is still growing. You know, we ought to sometimes take a look at figures. If you take your world almanac, it's rather interesting. In this 20th century, the world almanac still says, as regards Christianity, that it lists over 869 million adherents. Then the next religion is Islamism or Mohammedanism that lists a little over 400 million. Then the next comes Hinduism, a man-made religion that lists over 300 million. Do you and I realize that in this 20th century, this child who came to establish an everlasting kingdom would remind us that his kingdom on earth, just calling Christians, nominal Christians, is over twice the size of the next two largest religions on the face of the earth. You know, I believe that when he said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that he knew what he was talking about. And I believe with all my soul that he is seated at the right hand of God and he has his feet on his enemies. 
that no kingdom, no combinations of kingdoms, that Satan and hell and the fallen angels shall never be able to destroy his kingdom. Yes, he controls, and they may again come in persecution. And I would remind you, as I would remind myself, that in this 20th century, this is the century of persecution. We are told by historians that in this 20th century, more Christians have died as martyrs for the faith than died from the time of Christ up to the beginning of the 20th century. This is the age of martyrdom. And yet the church goes on and it survives. The gates of hell for nearly 2,000 years have not prevailed against it. But you may say, but what does that mean to me? What is he doing for me? This same king who, again, rules at the right hand of God is using this absolute power over your life and mine, we as members of his kingdom, so that Satan and hell and no adversity and no trouble will ever be able to snatch you and me away from him against our will. Sometimes we worry, don't we? We say what's coming. Sometimes we say, here are our boys in prison camps in Vietnam. We talk about torture. We say, will they be able to hold up? Will they be able to hold their faith? Is there going to be any kind of a destruction that is going to come to an individual? Any kind of an adversity? Any kind of a perplexity that will rob him of eternal life? Listen, you've got a king on the throne who says, no. No one will ever snatch you out of my hand. He is in control. It was St. Paul who said this. As far as his life, he said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. There will never come an adversity. There will never come a power. There will never come Satan with his force or his angels. But what Christ who is our king, 10,000 times 10,000 angels, 100 million angels, no one will ever be able to snatch you and me out of his kingdom against our will. That will never, never happen. That's what it means for this babe who is the king of an everlasting kingdom. He's running the show. And when you and I this morning, as we're getting ready for Christmas time, believe that, then we ought to be determined to say that I put my faith in him and my faith must grow as Peter called upon the Christians of his day and the days of persecution. He said, let your faith grow and let it show itself. He said, let it show itself in, again, the Christian graces. And he mentions virtue. He said, you ought to grow that, again, morality and integrity grow in your life and you can see it as a fruit. You ought to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Peter is telling them. You ought to add to knowledge, therefore, you ought to add self-control. You ought to grow in being able to control yourself in this world against all the sin, because again, in thankfulness to this king who is on the throne. You ought to grow, he says, in steadfastness, standing firm. As you grow in knowledge, you and I grow in steadfastness that every wind of doctrine isn't going to destroy human being. We ought to grow in piety, in a God-fearing sense of reverence in our Christian living. We ought to grow, he says, in brotherly kindness to one another. Here is the way our faith should manifest itself. And in brotherly love, the world cries, doesn't it, today? Am I my brother's keeper in the word of God? Say yes. 
And in this time of the year again that we show kindness and mercy, there's something about Christmas that brings it out, if at no other time of the year. And into our love and consideration for one another, Peter says, grow. That again, your faith may give evidence in life, and then we are ready for Christmas, because then we will have the certainty that our faith is a living, genuine faith, and that in this Christ we do have peace of mind and the assurance that all is well between us and God. Peter had to do a lot of growing too, didn't he, from that night when he was in Caiaphas' courtyard. He did a lot of growing. He wasn't the rock at that time, but he grew in faith. He grew, and when the days of persecution came and Nero had set fire to the city of Rome, it was Peter who was out there growing and comforting the people and showing love and mercy and kindness for Christians who were facing persecution and who were, again, facing having their bodies torn asunder by the lines in the amphitheater in the Colosseum at Rome. And when you and I are then ready for Christmas, and we say this morning on the second Sunday in Advent, uh, what child is this? And Simon Peter the Rock says, he is no less than the king of an everlasting kingdom. He's worthy of your loyalty. He's worthy of your complete surrender. He's worthy of your life. We may say, well, what, what's he doing for me now? And again, Peter would remind us that this child who is no less than the king of an eternal kingdom, he's the king who is coming back, and he's going to create new heavens and a new earth for his kingdom. We say, is he coming back? Is he really? Someone has taken the New Testament and has counted the references in the New Testament to the return of Christ, and he has come up with 319. Think of it. There are 319 direct or indirect references in the New Testament to the return of Jesus Christ. Is he coming back? When Jesus talks about coming back and coming back quickly, again, to me it's surely more than coincidental that the eyes of the world powers are still centering in the Middle East, still centering in Palestine, in Israel, where the fields of Megiddo are, and we talk about Armageddon, rather strange, isn't it, uh, that the world powers are centering. Again, what about this kingdom of Jesus Christ? Is the kingdom of the earth, or are the kingdoms of this world, going to be big enough to destroy it? And Jesus says in that great battle, he is going to come out victorious. He is going to create new heavens and a new earth. The present heavens and earth will be purged by fire, and there will be new heavens and a new earth for his kingdom. What is his kingdom? His kingdom is the kingdom that includes the people of God. No denominational handles, whatever. In the kingdom of God, you're not known as a Lutheran or a Methodist or a Baptist or a Roman Catholic or an Episcopalian or what have you, in the kingdom of God, you are known as the people of God, the saved, the elect of God, those who have washed in the blood of the Lamb. And the new heavens and the new earth, he says, when this king comes back, will be created for his kingdom. Then he assures you and me that our bodies will be raised from the dead and we shall be in the new heavens and the new earth forever and forever and forever. You see, your mind and mine can't comprehend eternity, which is a lack of time. All that we can do is think of it in terms of a long time. 
And perhaps the best illustration that has been given of eternity, this kingdom without end, is the illustration that I've used before. If the earth, the planet on which you and I live, were simply a ball of granite, if it were made out of solid granite, and a little bird would come once every thousand years and rub its beak on the side of the earth of granite and go away and come back another thousand years and rub its beak, that that little bird would have rubbed away the planet called earth of granite and eternity would be just beginning. This is the king whose birthday we are about to celebrate, who has established on this earth an everlasting, unending, eternal kingdom. And when you and I can believe that, and when we know that this is who he is, then we're going to get ready for Christmas because we're going to go all out for him. If there ever has been a time when the Christian church needs to go all out for Jesus Christ, it's in, again, this time as we await his advent, his coming back. As you sit in church this morning, you see our windows display it. Last Sunday we talked about the center window. This is the high priest, the one over to your left, to the south. That's the kingship window. That depicts Christ as king, the king of an eternal kingdom who reminds you and me as we look at it every Sunday that he's coming back and it's going to be an eternal, unending king. He's gone all out for us. There is nothing that he hasn't thought of. He has forgotten nothing. And these are the days then then we ought to stand up and be counted. These are the days when it means something to be a Christian, to go out and to witness for him. The apostle Peter, Simon the Rock, we are told by tradition that he was in Rome at the Neronian persecutions and the Christians there pled with him to leave the city that it was necessary that he remain alive and he took their advice, we are told, and he started down the Appian Way to leave the city of Rome. And it was night and I know when I walked the Appian Way I thought of that. And Peter, so tradition said, he was walking away because friends had influenced him to leave and he saw somebody coming towards Rome and as the person came closer, he looked and he recognized the face, and it was the Lord. And he supposedly said, Quo vadis, Domine, whither goest thou, Master? And it was Jesus, and Jesus said, I'm going to Rome to be re-crucified again. And Simon the Rock turned around, and he went back to Rome, and he was crucified. When they crucified him, he said, My Lord was crucified with his head up, I'm not worthy. Reversed the cross, and the inverted cross is still the symbol of Simon Peter's crucifixion upside down because, again, he, he gave everything. And when you and I say, I'm going to witness, these are the days to go out and to speak something for him, then we're going to be ready for Christmas because we're going to find out there is joy in doing something for Christ. I love that Christmas carol that has come to us from the Czech people. It talks about everybody can do something. It's the simple little story, you know, about the newborn king being born. And people came to the newborn king to bring their gifts. And there was a little boy who wanted to go too. And he watched others coming to this manger child and laying down gifts, but he didn't have anything to give. He had nothing. All that he had was a drum suspended from his neck on a string. And as the story goes, he went up to the Christ child and he said, I'm a poor boy, I don't have anything to give you, but shall I play for you on my drum? And as the story goes, he looked at Mary and she nodded, it would be all right. And the little boy, he had nothing to give, but he had a drum. And he played on his drum for the infant king. And as he played, we are told the cattle kept time. 
And then he looked at the infant king and the little poor boy, the drummer boy says, and he, he smiled at me. When you and I have done something, just something, maybe just playing the drum, and if this Christmas we can look down at him and we can say with our families and loved ones, look, he smiles at me, that's going to mean a Merry Christmas. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding, keeping unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.